Hello and a very warm welcome to Be With Champions. This is a show with inspiring, entertaining and informative stories shared by the world's greatest athletes and high performers. You can learn how they got to the top of the world and how they've been able to stay there. Each episode will delve deep into the topics ranging from training and competition, nutrition, sleep and recovery to the mental strategies, all so important when building a strong person or team and everything else in between. Yes, I'm Phil Liggers and I commentated on Greg Bennett during his Olympic career and I'm here to introduce you to him. The man who was a world number one triathlete and has been at the very top of his sport. So here we go. Please meet your host, Greg Bennett. Take it away, Greg. All right. In the sport of triathlon, many are keen to discuss who's the greatest of all time, a conversation that can spark heated debates amongst enthusiasts. But today's guest would rightly be a part of any of these discussions. But in my eyes, he's far more than that. In my eyes, he's like the the godfather of the sport of triathlon, a pioneer and an early adopter and a game changer of the sport. In 1980, he won his first of six Ironman world titles by over two hours in nine hours 24, smashing the previous record. He changed the Ironman event from a test of endurance to a race. In his Ironman championship wins in 1980, 82, 83, 84, 86, and again in 87, he was able to drop his times from 9 hours 24 to 8 hours 10. Still a very competitive time in today's standards 30 years later. His battles with fellow American triathlete Mark Allen in the mid to late 80s are legendary and the foundation of the sport of triathlon and Ironman. He had a powerful influence on me personally wanting to be a professional triathlete and I'm really thrilled to have a true legend of the sport of triathlon and a good friend of mine joining me today on Be With Champions. Welcome, Mr. Dave Scott. Thanks for joining me, mate. Thank you, Greg. Well, yeah. so, uh, it's a pleasure hearing your voice. We haven't <coughs> collided in quite a while and uh, rather glorious introduction. You know, when I first started this sport, no one was doing it. So if you're mildly athletic, you could uh, prevail. And so, <laughs> you know, the, in the first few years, it was most people went into the race as a survival. And I always thought, well, I'm going to race this bloody thing. So, uh, but, you know, the, obviously over the years, the, the quality of field ha, has stepped up quite a bit. Yeah, but it was going into the unknown when you did it. That was what was so incredible about it. It's one thing, it's like we've honed and honed and honed our skills and our fitness and everything that goes around it. I mean, you talk about 1980, the sport had only been around a couple of years and it really was just a couple of hundred guys going, yeah, let's give this thing a go. Um, and here you were going, yeah, let's give it a go, but let's see how fast we can truly do it. Not just, I don't know, for me, you were a real pioneer in that sense to be able to, to go where no one else had ever gone before. And, and like I said at the, at the intro there, it's like to go, you know, smash that record from, I think it was like 11 hours, 15 or something, and you took it all two hours off it. Uh, you must have just, the rest of the field must have just gone, this guy's crazy. He's nuts. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, ironically, there was there was only 108 people that did the race in '80, and so again, the the quality of the field was uh, was pretty slim. Uh, I I went into it, you know, again, not knowing any athletes. It, it didn't have the history that we have, and and uh, Greg Bennett's not earmarked as a top Aussie, and we don't know all the athletes around the world. I just went into it and said, well, I think I can push myself for the duration of this race. And if someone's with me, I, you know, I'm competitive. So let's see what happens. And mm. I, I knew a few, knew a few of the folks. There was actually a NC2A swim champion. His name was Tom Bowie. And 
he annihilated me in swimming uh, in the water in the pool. But in open water, I seemed to have a better knack. And so after the swim in that inaugural race for me and the third one of the Ironman history, I didn't see Tom Bowie. I thought he'd come out ahead and I'd catch him on the bike. Well, I led out of the swim and never saw anyone else for the rest of the day. So <laughs> you know, it was you know, quite an unusual event. It was just, you know, a time trial, which we've all done in this sport for many, many uh, training sessions. And, yeah, and I just kept thinking, well, I'll just keep pushing myself and see what happens. But, uh, you know, the, the record way back when, 79, was quite soft. You know, I, I was able to drop it. But, you know, the women are smashing that. Uh, this era, and then you know, fortunately, I was able to to come down, um, come down quite a bit. Eight oh one in Japan, eight ten in Hawaii. So mm. my quickest two. Yeah, and that was back when we're talking about the eighties, when some of the gear was just coming out. You know, the <laughs> I remember the the DH bars, the you know the aerodynamic bars, and and the special wheels, and the you know all of that stuff helped. I'm, I'm sure, but I think it was more of a mentality that you brought. So when we talk about, you know, the, the records being soft, I think you changed it, like I said, from being just get through this. It's an all day th- process of getting through it to you going, yeah, I'm just going to, I'm going to go all out. It's, it reminds me today a little bit of, um, there's an athlete in our sport for people that don't know by the names of Alistair Brownlee, who's a double yeah. Olympic gold medalist. And the way that Alistair Brownlee is, raced throughout his career and to win those two gold medals is just an all-out approach it's not like he's pacing himself at any moment throughout the race and and what you brought to the sport back in 1980 was that same kind of mentality was like hang on i'm not going to pace myself here this is let's see how quickly we can get through this and that really set up the stage for the people like mark allen and all these other you know uh, scott molina and these other guys that won the race later on i think they started to grasp that hang on if Dave can race it, maybe I can too. And so that's why I like to call you kind of as the, I don't know, I, I did say the godfather, but I kind of feel like that ages you a little bit. And I don't mean it like that. I, I do mean it. In a- I'm old, Greg, so that's fine. The, the, <laughs> the title is fine based on my uh, biological age. No, no. What I'd like to do is like just wind the clock, you know, back. And when did you first really find your passion for endurance sports? You know, how old were you and what were you involved in? Uh Boy, I, I think I never was very talented in swimming. I spent a lot of time because I lived in a warm part of the of the world in California. So we started swimming at an early age. But I think I realized when I was in high school that, um, you know, I just didn't have the mechanics. I didn't have a great kick. I had a pretty rough stroke and I, you know, had this deranged bull mentality and workouts and racing that I just, you know, went as hard as I could. And, you know, you're parallel to Alistair Brownlee it, and sort of the style of racing that I had, even at it, it when I was a youth, was very similar that I carried into triathlon. Uh, I played this American football for a couple of years. I played basketball four years in high school and kind of as a jack of all trade. I had a 12 handicap in golf at one time. <laughs> and um, water polo was kind of my skill in uh, high school and college. But I started running in college and I, you know, I realized if the, if the workouts just went uh, one after another, I seemed to have the endurance. And I, and I recognize this in college, you, you know, we do a morning session, then we lift weights and then we do a swim session, we play water polo. And we, you know, particularly during the, the holiday breaks, there would be session after session after session and everyone's pretty bedraggled. And I, I seemed to just uh, flourish as the day lingered on. 
So I, you know, I kind of applied that early on. I, the opportunity to do these sort of multi-sports that didn't really have a name in the late 70s. I started doing open water swims. I seemed to have a knack for the uh, the rough water and certainly the saline water uh, ocean. I was, uh, th- that buoyancy helped me. And then I did a, a bike run event. And actually, I have a very funny picture of of what was denoted as the big four, I raced Scott Molina. He was 15 years old. I was 21 and it was down in San Francisco and it started off with a a run and then a swim on the end. I never saw Scott. He took off on the run. He was completely gone. He ended up winning the event. I I, I thought I actually won. So that was kind of an (laughs) early early element of endurance racing. And and then I, I did my first triathlon in 76 it didn't have a title. There was no organization. There weren't aid stations. There weren't police at the intersections. It was just mayhem. And it started off with uh, an ill-defined, probably 15K, a nine-mile uh, bike. That was the first leg. And you just threw your bike on the ground. And uh, I wasn't going to do it. I was having some knee issues. And, and I, 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 to this day, I don't really know why. I didn't have cycling shoes. I went over to my trunk. This is the transition. Pulled out some other shoes after getting off the bike. Went out on the run. The run was about 7K, about four miles. And then the last leg was the swim uh, in San Francisco Bay. And, and of course, it, it wouldn't take time to, to wear a wetsuit. The wetsuits really weren't around then for proper swimming. So we jumped in the bay and it was about 13 degrees centigrade or about 54, 55 Fahrenheit. So <laughs> it had a bite. Uh, there was a couple of guys that were ahead of me. And I, I honestly, the, the only guy I saw, he was hanging onto this anchor in the, uh, in the bay. And he, I think he had a whole, full body cramp. Anyway, that was the start. So getting back, getting back to your, your question, a long winded answer. I, I kind of, you know, I felt as though the endurance part of, of whatever physiology I had, I was designed to do that. And then when the Ironman came around in uh, 78, I read about it in 80, I did it. I said, well, this may be, maybe my niche. Yeah. So for you, it was really like you, you kind of, your passion and your strengths kind of emerged at the same time. You know, a lot of the guys that I interview, they, they talk about, look, I watched Mark and Dave race in 87 and 89, and I had a real passion to want to do the sport. And then they realized they were good later on. But for you, it's almost like you realized you were good and then you had a passion for the sport. And that's kind of almost re- the reverse because it wasn't a sport. And that's why I find it really fascinating that you kind of, you really pioneered this sport. You know, you weren't watching anybody else do it. There was never, there wasn't multi-sport. There was you versus a 15-year-old Scott Molina jumping into 15, you know, freezing lakes and things. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I mean, that, I love that. I, I think it's just, you know, and like I said at the top of the show, it's like, you know, you were a, a really powerful influence on me wanting to do the sport you know we literally i think i remember watching you know you guys in 83 84 and i did my first triathlon at 86 when i was 14 and it was like you just wanted to be like dave scott and scott tinley you know you guys were the guys that had started this unique thing and for us growing up in australia and there was a number of us that came out of australia that we'd watch you guys on sky television and you know, I had to sneak into the back of pubs where they had the Sky Television going on, where they show these races over here, and especially you know, the Ironman, which was on Widewater Sports down there. You know, often four or five months after the fact, um, and we'd get to watch you guys. For us, it was like this passion was starting to build, and then we all realized, hey, I got a bit of talent, and uh, I love the fact that you were somebody that 
hey, if they give me one extra set, I can uh, I can keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a kind of silly mentality in some ways, but it, I, I mean, I guess the the psychological element of it, which was really open-ended for me because I didn't have any parameters on myself. It wasn't defined by, you know, swimming 1500 in a, in a pool. Mm. Uh, it was just this, there were so many variables in triathlon and, and the nuances, which you're very familiar with, Greg, having been a, a great star uh, yourself, you know, you recognize there's, <clears throat> there's waves of physical and psychological uh, <laughs> toll that takes place when you're doing the race. I mean, you go through these dips and valleys where you think, boy, I'm having the worst day of my life. And all of a sudden you're able to pull yourself out. And, and certainly when the competitive level came up um, during the years that I raced, all of a sudden, you know, I have someone next to me, whether it was Tinley or Alan or whomever. And, and you know, that just added a, a, a great element. And, um, you know, it, it seemed to, to flourish and revel with that as opposed to, my earlier years when I was in high school and college and I'd be swimming to 1500 or 1650 yards in the States. And I think, Oh man, I feel shattered at about 50, 50 meters. I don't know if I can <laughs> hang on, but the triathlon, you know, I think everyone who's done the sport, including yourself, we, we've had races where you think, you know, this is the worst day of my life and you're able to bring yourself out of it. And I, and I had several Ironmans like that later in my career that, you know, they weren't, flowing well and and i was able just to kind of pick myself up emotionally and get back in the game almost muscle your way through it i i've had a lot of experiences like that where you know the day before the night before even the morning of you just feel lousy warming up and then the gun goes and you're like oh yeah the body remembers you know i know what i'm doing here and i've had the reverse too where i felt spectacular the day before great in warm-up and then i can't get out of my own way when the gun goes (laughs) um so when did you decide uh, I mean, there wasn't there wasn't money in the sport um, so much back then. But like, when did you decide to sort of go all in and really start? You know, when did you pull the trigger and say, right, I'm going to really give this Iron Man thing a good good go? Or was it a was it a steady build into it? Oh, there was no steady build, Greg. And I'm all or nothing. I'm a Type A guy. So I, when I finished the Ironman and, and won an eighty. Uh, I had a roommate. We were a few years out of college, and uh, his name was Jay. And I, he was a lawyer. And I said, Jay, let's uh, start. Partly his initiation. He said, Dave, I'll send out some letters. Internet wasn't around, and I'll send some letters to some companies, and they're certainly going to sponsor you for the <laughs> next season. Well, that was wishful thinking. Uh, the irony is, I did get a kind of a positive note back from Timex that has been a long-standing sponsor, but no one threw cash at me. And there really wasn't any money. The, the first contract that I did have was 1982. And in 82, the, uh, at, at that time, Anheuser-Busch sponsored, Bud Light sponsored a series that um, kind of went around the country. And there were six events that year. They were a little bit longer than Olympic distance, 2,000 meters swim, uh, 30 uh, 50k bike, if I remember, and 15k runs. So it added another half hour to 40 minutes of, of racing. And, and I was able to win all those races, but the big four, <laughs> Tinley and Alan Molina, also started joining the ranks on this. So 82, I had my first contract with Nike. Uh, I got $6,000 and a lot of uh, shoes. 
And I won $500 times six in those races. So I, I thought I was, man, this is amazing. This is the most lucrative sport I could possibly imagine. I'm a, I'm a pro athlete. And, uh, you know, I, I had the 6,000 from Nike and 3,000 in prize money. And I said, wow, this is great. I, I've got $9,000 this year. I'm on my way. And, and really at that time, it was just a passion that I had. It was surviving from day to day. Uh, you know, able to buy a plane ticket uh, on meager rations and, you know, the race director might put you up in a hotel, but uh, the prize money that eventually came into the sport and uh, some of the international races I started traveling to, I was able to get upfront money. And and the, the first uh, check that was uh, for my Hawaii wins was really my fifth win uh, was by a local who lived on Ali'i Drive, which is the famous Ali'i Drive that we've all run on. And I think he just felt badly for the athletes and, and he put up um, uh, $10,000. And so in, after I'd won four, no money at all, I had some sponsor money. I had a bike company and and, uh, and shoe company and sunglasses and, and so on, but there was no prize money in Ironman. So I won 10000 He put up twelve the next year. And then after that, I think Ironman was embarrassed and they started putting up money for the athletes. But Early on, it was pretty darn meager. <laughs> you get a I, T-shirt, and they say, "Come back again." <laughs> I, I remember uh, in one of my uh, better years, <clears throat> I was uh, I came over to your house, and I think I'd had a decent six-figure kind of check from one of the races, and, and, uh, <laughs> and that was the first I'd ever heard that you know you you weren't paid anything for those. <laughs> early on. I was like, "Wow." <clears throat> well, you know. It was like, thank you very much for setting up the sport. We'll, we'll, right. we'll, we'll enjoy, we'll enjoy all the perks that come with it. Now, thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, there, you know, I mean, you had a, some glorious years financially, as another number of athletes had. But and I'm not oh, yeah. saying that in a derogatory tone. No. Tone the nature of the monster in this sport. It just takes an inordinate amount of, of work, and it's not seasonal. It's year round. Mm. Uh, and anyone who's participated, as you have, at a professional level it's a brutal sport. So, you know, the six figure check, boy, we'd like to have a whole handful of those. And yeah, uh, there wasn't too many of those, even in my time, it was like, everybody yeah. remembers your good years. They don't see the three or four in between, you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, so there, when, when you kind of, how are you surviving then? It was like, you said, I'm going to go all in. I'm an A type personality. This is what I'm going to do. Were you working at the same time to pay your way uh, in those early days? Yeah, good question, Greg. I, when I got out of college, I, I kept thinking that I would be a, a teacher, a coach. I thought at the collegiate level, you know, I might coach swimming. That was kind of my early aspirations. I always seemed to have a, a knack for, for teaching. Uh, and but my dad was a professor, and I thought, well, maybe I'll, I had no interest in his area, which is civil engineering. But I thought, well, that's maybe in my lineage. Uh, but as I said, when I you know, first was able to win Ironman in 80, I said, boy, I just, this is such a passion for me. I just want to continue doing this. And I survived r really on the, you know, the meagerest amount of, uh, of money coming in. But again, at that time, my overhead was, <laughs> my overhead was light. I wasn't married, didn't have kids and, <laughs> and uh, live in a little tiny condo. And I just thought, well, you know, this is. This is incredible. And, and after Nike came on in 82, I was able to get some other sponsors. And, you know, I had a, a few years uh, sponsor-wise who came out of the Dave Scott bike with us, Centurion. Mm -hmm. and, and 
at that time, it was it, there was a couple of unique f- features on it. But 1987 was really the first year that aero bars were put on the bikes, and uh, so that feature came about on the Dave Scott line, and and uh, I made a pretty good chunk of change, not a lot per bike, but we sold a lot of bikes. We sold 35,000 bikes mm-hmm. uh, in one year, and the following year, I think 86 and 87. And, um, so that, you know, I, I, I felt like, wow, I'm, I'm making a lot of money in this sport. It's going to last for eternity. And this is incredible, but, uh, that, <laughs> that did not happen. And as you know, it's a pretty ruthless, uh, business because sponsors that you seem to have a great rapport relationship with it, well, the marketing momentum changes and all of a sudden you lose that contract and every athlete in this sport, you know, we're pretty disposable. So, you know, I found the brutality also of relationships that I thought were going to, you know, really support me, but they, they ironically don't. And, um, you know, and, I, and I've had some wonderful relationships in the, in the sport for years. It's not, you know, woe is me. It's a bucket mm-hmm. of sour grapes. It, uh, that, that made it difficult. Prize money was still, you know, pretty, pretty limited. Uh, to, by the time I kind of finished, you know, my, my glory days, it was still pretty, pretty small. 94 when I was second to, to the great Aussie, Greg Welch and the Ironman. Mm. And I think there was a little bit of a bonus structure b- built in with Ironman, not counting sponsors. But I think that check at Ironman was my biggest one. I think it was 16,000. So I mean, the, the Ironman's still building and still growing, and you know the sport continues to grow. And that's again why I said at the top of the show, you know, you were kind of the guy that is largely responsible for it. And I, and I say that because you were the one that that brought a lot of attention to the sport and by what you were doing. And then when Mark Allen did come along and, and the the battles that you guys had, and you know you just kept running over the top of him year after year, the poor guy. And then, you know, I know, I know that, you know, we've just celebrated the 30th year of what they like to call the iron war, but I think one of the, the, even the better races was also 87 when you came back, you know, after he, you know, ran away from you, you know, and got four or five minutes up the road and, and you just were so calculating and there, there you were again. And I'll never forget watching you run behind the media van, you know, with, with uh, a couple of miles to go. And there was no way Mark could have responded, but I love the, you were still so with it. You had the insight to go, look, you know, don't let him even see you. Don't let him, you know, and anybody that hasn't seen 87, you can YouTube uh, 87 Ironman and, uh, and, and watch it with all the commentary and everything. It's just an unbelievable <laughs> race to watch. And, uh, I'll never forget that. You know, we were all watching it back in Australia and we were right into the sport by 87. We were buying your Centurion bikes and we were buying the Dave Scott clothing line. And, you know, I think there was a Dave Scott, the Scott Tinley. Everyone had a clothing line. Sure. And uh, and uh, we we had all your gear. So out of those 35,000 bikes, you know, I was one of them and I'm sure <laughs> a lot of my mates were. And, um, but, you know, I think when we look back and what you did in that, especially that 80s period, and I know you came back, you know, and got second to Greg in 94, and that was a spectacular, you know, at 42, coming back and doing a great performance there. And then you came back again, I think, at 45. Well, you? I, I was 40 in 1994 with Greg. 40, and, and then 90, 42, you came back. That's right. Yeah, I, 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 1996, I was 42. I, I yeah. planned plan to come back in 95. I said, well, golly, I got close with Greg. Yeah clipping me on the on the 94 race and i had broken my toe dropping a, a weight in the gym on it 95 so that kind of curtailed my 
Kona lineup on that year. And then 96, I came back and uh, really struggled on the swim and the bike, but I was able to, to put together a good marathon. So I ran up from 26th to 5th. So that wow, was... It was like a 245 marathon, wasn't it? It was uh, still be competitive. <laughs> I, I think you were also, again, you know, the guy, one of the first guys to really push sport into your 40s you know I, I retired at 44 and I know that you know Craig Alexander who's a three-time Ironman world champion as well he's now 46 and he's continuing to race <clears throat> um, but you were really you know for that 80s and 90s era the first of or well, anybody to really go into your 40s and I think the one thing about you is you love the sport you love being fit you love the science of sport you love trying to figure out problems and how to better yourself um and that's why it's always been fun, you know, for a lot of us in, in Boulder, Colorado, to have you as our swim coach at times or help in the gym at times. And your knowledge and passion for the sport, you know, it, it consumes you. You know, there's a lot of athletes that come into the sport and or any sport and they might last four, five, even 10 years, but then they're kind of out and they don't want anything to do with it. But for you, I, I've always seen you as just someone who's, who's loves, has loved it since, you know, 76 and here we are, you know, 45 years later, and I think you still talk about the sport with, you know, amazing passion. Yeah, I've never lost that, Greg. I mean, I still coach a couple uh, sessions, swim sessions in Boulder, and people ask, you know, why do you do that? And I, I, I mean, you hit the word. I, I, I'm still passionate about it. I still have a run, run squad that meets every Wednesday morning. But uh, I think probably what always propels me is, you know, I, I love to kind of figure out what the best guys are doing. And it quite often doesn't parallel the latest science, but you, you know, you've got to integrate that and you've got to integrate the art and, you know, we're not robots. So I, I, uh, you know, I really enjoy the puzzle. And ironically in your, uh, your home country, I, I returned a few years back and there was a group of old people my age. <laughs> I had given a clinic there about 25 years ago and they said, Dave, you told us to eat all those carbohydrates back then. I know I'm, I said, I'm sorry. Um, the science was there, but I kind of pushed it aside. And I said, I'm grateful that you're all alive. And, um, you know, at the time that <laughs> I knew and the athletes knew, and, and to this day, a lot of athletes perform extremely well uh, eating a high carbohydrate diet. But for really the performance parameters are are now unfolding the science as far as aging and longevity and, and optimal health is really to kind of shift that around to, to go to a lower carb and high healthy fat. And so I'm kind of crazy about the science on this and obviously being in an older uh, beaten up stallion. Uh, I told the, told the Aussie group, I said, well, now I'm professing this other way around. So, you know, it was a quite a funny moment, but you know, I, I think to your point, Greg, I, I, I think it's the validity of a lot of people that have, uh, a much higher degree, uh, and also level of expertise. And that this includes PhD folks and MDs that have, professed exactly what I did and have now looked at the science that has been there for a long, long, long time are saying, no, we, we have made a mistake and we're going to try to apply this to the greatest athletes to hopefully make them better. And when they're in their forties, like you are, and as you cited, you know, Craig Alexander, amazing athlete. And a lot of the athletes that are, are maintaining their, their career are maintained in a lot of different components. Nutrition is just one of them. Yeah, I, I want to touch on nutrition a little bit 
later down the show, but you, you make a good point. I was talking to my mum actually the other day when we were laughing about the big carbo parties we used to have the yeah. night or two nights before the race where we'd all just load up on pasta and, and, and feel completely flat by the, by the time we got to the race. But, you know, that's what was preached at the time. And so when you, when you won your six events and, and not just your wins, but, you know, some of your great podiums that you had there as well, we, you did all of that on a higher carbohydrate diet though too, right? I mean, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And, and so, and so do you think you would be would have done better on a diet, you know, a higher fat diet that we talk about these days? Uh, yes. And the, the reason I'm saying that, you know, not because, oh boy, I, I could have experimented with that um, low carb, high fat. Well, I, I wasn't wise enough back then, but I, I'm saying it now because I, I did have – uh, massive fluctuations in training and, and sometimes racing as well, just what you alluded to. And I would see the athletes, you know, loading up on the pasta dinners and the carbohydrates and the pies and everything else. And I think, wow, they're just going to be so bloody bloated by the time they get to the starting line. <laughs> keep eating, you guys. It's going to kill you. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and actually there, there are a lot of side, side effects and, and long-term side effects that kind of creep up with athletes and, um, so I, I think to answer your question, Greg, I, I think the recovery from day to day would have been uh, way much, much better. Uh, and there's great data on this. Because your branch chain, is, branch chain amino acids, your proteins that are circulating are higher on a high fat diet, not low carbohydrate. You don't lay down what's called this plaque called glycation. So I look at it as a, as a long term issue. And, and a lot of athletes, which we've referred to, and Greg, you, you, Lauren, you lived here in town, uh, Boulder's a healthy town, but we see a lot of people that are kind of defined as skinny fat. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're very, very, very lean. They maintain their leanness by really modulating their diet, even on a high carbohydrate diet, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're healthy. And, and using myself, you know, people will say to this day, and, and even my son, he, you know, he'll, he'll come in with boxing gloves and he said, well, you know, you did this and Jan Frodeno does that and they're all eating high carbohydrates. And I'm not refuting that, but I'm looking at, let's just say Jan Frodeno, amazing champion, incredible, phenomenal, great admiration. And he has not run well in Ironman. And, mm -hmm. and he knows this. And I, you know, I've said this to Jan with his capability, what he's done in the 70.3 races, he should be running 235 or better mm -hmm. off the bike. And no one has. Is that diet? Well, maybe, maybe. I don't know, mm. but I, I think we need to look at the the benefits of recovery and how you can enhance that when you're in your heyday, and then also look at some of the issues like laying down visceral fat, where people have a lot of hidden fat around their organs, which can lead to metabolic syndrome and type two diabetes and all, a whole host of problems. Uh, there, I was actually listening to this podcast. I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but. Listen to this podcast uh, from a woman in Australia. And I wish I could think of her name. I think it was Nina, and she was uh, uh, works at the Australian Institute of Sport, and she's a big advocate for a low carb, high fat uh, diet and and some ketogenic diet, which is even more extreme. And that's what I do now. It's very low carbohydrate. And she had a picture of twelve athletes, and she said, "Can you identify these athletes?" She was giving a talk, and I could identify about seventy percent of them. Older athletes: Billie Jean King, this guy Earl Monroe, who played basketball, and was an American football player. And then she put up the tagline next to him, and she said, "Well, the, the, uh, this one has dementia. This one has Alzheimer's. These three have." Mm -hmm. 
type 2 diabetes, all of them were inflicted with some neurodegenerative diseases and some, uh, you know, type 2 diabetes, but they all had some sort of chronic disease. And I think, her, you know, her point was here were great athletes. Then during their heyday, they were able to manage this. But were they really starting to dig their uh, hole in the ground too early? Mm-hmm. And now look what has happened. So I, I know I'm kind of long-winded on this. No, I love it. I mean, look, if we, we could talk about this for the entire show because I'm just <laughs> fascinated. And I think it is a – you almost become more fascinated with the longevity of health as you retire from sport. I think when you're in your 20s and 30s, you feel invincible. Right. And then all of a sudden, you're in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and you're like, oh, crap, I want to feel good each day. And yeah, and I think absolutely. if if we can be talking to athletes in their 20s and 30s that are at the, the peak of their performance to say, hey – you can still perform on the world stage by doing this, but you can also have great longevity. And and when you mention things like uh, Alzheimer's or or any of these kind of th- things that plague us as we get older, I, I think that's something that young athletes need to be educated about. Yeah, absolutely. And, we, and they're not. And I think, you know, as you know, Greg, I mean, I was kind of myopic. We all feel like, gee, I'm doing well and my contemporaries are doing sort of the same thing. Why would I want to go with this? And it's, you know, this whole thing on low carb, high fat or uh, nutritional ketosis is not pseudoscience. The science has been there for over 100 years uh, and it's kind of come to the forefront really in the last 12 years. So there's, you know, there's folks around the world, every continent, every nation is now has science, scientists. Australia has a whole mm-hmm. slew of them that are doing brilliant research on it. And, and there's a lot of naysayers that don't want to come out, really look at it and, and are digging their heels in. And, and, I, and I think, you know, from my standpoint, it's easy for me to get up in front of a group and, and tell them, you know what, I was wrong because I didn't really look far enough. I try not to bury people with science, but to give them choices. And there's some really good things that 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds can do is to look, look at an in-depth blood markers to see whether or not they are going in the right direction or not. And metabolically, we're all different. So some could be eating McDonald's every day and they've got a great blood blood profile. And I'll say, well, you're lucky. Uh, It may creep up on, on you. It may not. And others may have these indicators that are starting to say, hey, you better be careful. Mm. Mm. What what do you think about uh, you mentioned Jan Fedino and from what I know I think he's vegan I'm going to have him on the show in the next couple of weeks but I think he's gone vegan what what are your thoughts on vegan versus I know uh, Pete Jacobs who won Kona Ironman World Championships back in 2012 he's had all sorts of issues and he's gone basically a full meat diet and then I have you know on the other spectrum we have Jan Fedino and I feel like. All of us in the middle just are going to go throwing our hands up, going, I feel so confused on what way to go. You know, I know there's, I feel like there's science preaching from every which direction. What are your thoughts on it? Well, there, there is, there is good science. And I, and I tried a vegan diet for a while, uh, Greg, and I also tried a lacto oval um, vegetarian diet. So you're allowing uh, milk and, and eggs, which is a plus. And then there's all these pseudo. Uh, variations off it were pesca variant vegetarian where you're t- where you're having fish which i think is a great thing but uh in jan Ferdano, not picking i mean you'll, ha- you'll have to have this validated by him uh, I-, I think vegan diets for uh, the bulk of people is a big mistake and it's a big mistake because they're not getting the levels of omega-3s and omega-3s really fa- affect organ and brain health 
the conversion with plant-based omega-3s is very, very small. And, and I, I profess this all the time. I said that a lot of the nuts have great conversion, but it's real minimal on the amount of omega-3s in comparison to cold water fish. So without including that, you're not having salmon or mackerel or tuna or sardines, uh, all the deep fatty fishes, which are loaded with the, the healthy omega-3s, which go you know directly to your organs and your brain, you're kind of uh, potentially on a borderline. Also, mm. the athletes are not getting great sources of, of iron. So the iron store levels can be on a very minimal level. So pe- you know people should look at their complete iron panel, not just looking at, at ferritin levels. And, and this is a real problem with en- endurance athletes. Um, and it, particularly the, the volume that a lot of the athletes and maybe on for Daniel that, that they're running because that they're actually squashing some of the, the red blood cells, which seems kind of funny in their shoes, which actually even decreases the amount of iron. Uh, it's called hemolysis. And so the intake from plant-based iron sources is, is very, very, very minimal. Hmm. Secondly, a lot of them are, are taking in so many carbohydrates just to survive. And, and I did this. And so they can have one of the blood markers is uric acid, which uh, shows very, very high levels of, of carbohydrate intake. And, and this can be a huge long-term effect. So uh, B vitamins, B12 is another factor. Uh, a lot of people will gravitate to soy and soy has a lot of phytoestrogens in it and, co- and it competes with zinc as well. So I, I'm reel down on vegan diets. I think it's a mistake. Mm. Uh, I know my voice is pretty powerful and strong on this. And a lot of athletes will do very, very well. I get reminded of a, uh, a movie that's out now called Game Changers. And it's talking mm-hmm. about athletes that have shifted over to a vegan diet and they feel great and they've done well. I'm not refuting that, but I think for long term, it's not the right diet. If I was talking to Jan directly, and I, and I think he's a wonderful guy and a great ambassador for the sport and a super, super athlete, I would tell him to get off that diet. Yeah, and, and look, from what I know, he might be taking fish, so um, yeah. that might you know help with a lot of the things you're saying. Um, but I know he's probably pushing the uh, pushing the the vegan. I what did you say it was when you add fish in? Well, the, the omega three levels, uh, which permeate the brain, are are really really key, and and a lot of people that are eating. Uh, massive amounts of carbohydrates get this uh, kind of, uh, it's called glycation. And uh, I remember one of our presidents, which I wasn't too fond of, Ronald Reagan, they did an autopsy on him and the brain density, which they see in Parkinson's and Alzheimer's patients, it's it's like a, a brick. It's solid as rock. It's not permeable. It's not soft. And a lot of this is attributed to a real high carbohydrate intake. So when you're on a vegan diet, you have to eat a massive amount of carbohydrates. And a lot of them can be very, very refined and simple. They're, they're not nutrient dense. Uh, and so, the, the, you know, the biggest problem is that the conversion of the uh, plant-based omega-3s is, uh, is very, very small for a vegan. It's fascinating. So, how is your health now? Like if we're talking about that we had the high carbohydrate diets and, and the way you worked your body in your 20s, 30s, 40s, uh, you know, are you seeing consequences or, or how are you generally these days? I see consequences, Greg. I'm a- <laughs> do you, no, but do you see it because of those? Do you think it's due to those things? Do you think you- uh, really- Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. And- yeah. Because there's great science and I, I don't want to bore your listeners on this. I'll just have them, they, can, they should Google this. Mm. The, the long, what seems to be the stream on 
uh, athletes that endurance athletes that are predisposed to heart arrhythmias and there's an amazing prevalence. And I, so many I, of them, yes, yeah, so many. endless. And I gave a talk at, uh, the Ironman, a medical conference a couple of years ago. And there was a, uh, a great, uh, French author who was also given a talk on this area. He studied it in depth. And, and I just was talking about a lot of the cyclists and the, you know, the tour, the tour riders, but I said, even at the amateur level, I said, are, we, are you seeing the arrhythmias? I have seen data that says absolutely cyclists, runners, triathletes, rowers, predominantly men. There's a couple common threads that, that the scientists have discovered. One is over distance, kind of hard training all the time. And I know that's ill-defined. <laughs> I feel like that's my, my entire life. I'm in trouble. And it produces this protein called a cytokine, which is very inflammatory. So I'd like your listeners to Google this without going in my dissertation. Mm. There's a type of cytokine called a myokine. And the, the difference in these, the myokines are produced by the skeletal muscle. What, what heightens the inflammatory response are two things where these heart arrhythmias, I'll get to your question here in a second. Uh, the cytokines go up with long distance training. And you're kind of pushing yourself kind of hard all the time because we have the ability to do it. I did this. You did this. A lot of athletes lock in. They go out on a four hour bike ride and they do it hard. I did zillions of those. Hmm. Same thing, you know, you run 21K. Well, I think I'll do all of it hard. Or, hmm. you know, I'll start off in the first 2Ks and then, oh, yeah, I'll just lock in. You know, a lot of runs like that. So you're producing these inflammatory cytokines. Hmm. Long distance repetitive training. The other parallel is an abundance of carbohydrates. You get the same response. Hmm. So it's a double whammy. What hmm. negates it is if you reduce that volume, you gravitate to a uh, lower carb, higher healthy fat, and you and you start in interjecting higher intensity interval training, and that includes you know higher end stuff. And you did it, I did it, but we probably skewed it too much to the longer distance uh, mm. area, and also including high intensity training, strength training, where you're taking the muscle to real hardy fatigue. So the strength work for endurance athletes is real key. I'll get to your question. Mm. I do not have great health because I've had a heart arrhythmia. Um, and I got it on a day where I, where I was riding with uh, a couple and I was faster than them. It was a warm day. I was certainly dehydrated. You're very familiar with going up to, to, um, Brainerd Lake. It's 10,000 mm. feet, about 3,300, 3,400 meters. And I, I was kind of going back and forth. I'd ride up and come back down and meet them, ride up, come back down. And I came back and, mowed a couple of lawns and then did a swim workout. And that night I was um, seated, on, <laughs> uh, just sitting on the floor having a, a leisurely dinner, which quite often I'll just stretch my legs out. And my heart was going crazy, wow. crazy, 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 crazy. And I got up the next day and said, I'm going to run. I usually would run easy on Sunday. And I ended up walk running. And um, the irony is my mate at the time, I said, well, let's go to the bookstore. And, but I said to you, my heart is really bad, real bad. And we ended up going to the, ended up going to urgent care. And as soon as I walked in, I said, my heart's kind of high. They checked and they said, you got to get to the ER room right now. Wow. And my heart rate was 226 when I came in there. So that got their attention. Wow. How yeah. old were you? How, how many years ago was that? Four years ago. So I. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, so I had this, I had uh, atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation, which are two types of arrhythmias. Mm. I had an ablation to get rid of the flutter, which is the common procedure. Quite often, they don't know why. They're totally different, and it knocks out the fib. It didn't on mine, so I had a second, uh, kind of an exploratory ablation. They were in my heart for seven hours. That one didn't work, so I'm over to I still have it as we're speaking. And it certainly has curtailed my athletic cockiness, even at my mm. young age. Uh, it's walloped me, and psychologically, absolutely. But physically, it's like I'm at uh, 10,000 meters and trying to exercise. Um, the, the most difficult is, is swimming and run, running, and I can get away a little better going to lower gear on the bike. But it's a limiter. So... You know, I, I, like you said, I think it can be very um, – I don't think an athlete ever loses that mindset, that competitive – like I still look – you know, I've been retired five years and I still look every now and then. I'm like, ah, oh, I could get out there and do it. But <laughs> it, it, it must have been – I remember talking to you I think in 06, 07 or 08 and I think you were pretty keen to get back into Ironman then. I think you were like 50, <laughs> 54, 55. I, I can't remember the exact age you were and and I could see it in your eyes that you were like, yeah, let me let me go, let me go, let me go. And I think something like this would be th- that that kind of shock, like whoa, 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 you you've had your turn, you know, yeah. you've had you've had your turn, and and now it's about okay, how do we manage moving forward? I guess you know so that's that's terrifying. Yeah, uh, it is terrifying, and I and I think a lot of athletes that uh, are saying that couldn't happen to me as I did. Mm. Ignorance can really put a, a stop and, and kind of open the door to, the, to a higher probability and possibility with endurance athletes. And it's very prevalent. And I lost a, a, a good um, a friend of mine. He died a, about a year and a half ago and he had a similar condition. He had atrial fib and they corrected it and and there's a lot of issues. You're you're predisposed to getting a stroke, which is a kind of a scary thing. And I and I got walloped by a car. What you were talking to in 2009 by an SUV, and I had a pulmonary embolism in my chest and a, a deep vein thrombosis, which is a blood clot in my legs. And, and then I've had these arrhythmias. So uh, we're we're all kind of vulnerable. I've had a host of <laughs> host of issues, mm. and I'm stuck with this, with this arrhythmia that. Uh, cardiologist is saying, well, you're going to have to have another one. Mm. And uh, I'm not too eager about doing that. But I, I think for the listeners, it's it's something that they should really look at that sometimes less is better. And we don't need to put the volume in to be a great triathlete or great runner or a great cyclist. And that, you know, quite often we see this as we're building up in the year whether it's travel or weather or whatever, we're not putting in the volume and your body responds or at the end of the year and you're thinking, gee, I just want to do one more race. I really haven't done much. And your body just feels fantastic with a little more recovery. And I think we need to look at this more closely for the reasons I, I, I just brought up and, mm. you know, do the strength train, which is huge. You know, I know I'm at, no, I was ragging on you way back when about doing more of it. <laughs> And well, we we all get we're all like I was a bit of a bullet gate. Um, you know, I I was talking to uh, Simon Whitfield the other day in one of the earlier shows, and you know he was a bit more like Laura. They tended to be fairly calculating in in what kind of work they want to do when they want to do it. Whereas I tended to I was I think I was probably a bit more like you in personality, where 
like you said, a four hour bike. Okay. Let's go see if I can get 150 K in or whatever, you know, and then, okay, a 21 K or a two hour run, you know, can I get my 30, 35 K in and how, how far can I get? And everything was more, you know, if, if 25 K done well, it was good. Well then surely 30 K done faster <laughs> is better. And, exactly. and I think looking as we go on here and, um, a lot of the audience are guys, you know, in our forties, fifties, sixties. And, and so there is a lot of, you know, you, you think you're talking off topic, but I actually am fascinated about this for myself and, and this is my show. So I want to keep talking about it. Um, and that, that, that is, I think the, uh, you know, a lot of science has been done about inflammation these days and, and how we can bring that inflammation down. And, and that can be done through diet, like you said, whether it be ketosis or a high fat, low carb type diet, or I've been recently doing a lot of, uh, you know, ice bathing and um and really how it's affected my my hormones but also my my mood and um i read a little bit about the proteins released in the brain when you when you can bring your body temperature down a couple of degrees fahrenheit and and i didn't really need to read all these articles because i was self-experimenting and i i realized the effects it was having on me especially as a retired athlete i think we all go through this kind of a I wouldn't say depression, that's too strong a word, but I think you kind of miss that sense of real purpose in your life. And you and uh, doing the ice bathing, I think it's helped me in many ways from bringing down the inflammation, but also it's affected my mood. Do you do any of these kinds of things? Can you do it with the way your heart is now? Um, yes, I'll say yes, I can. And, and you're right on a good vein uh, for your listeners. The ice bath and also the dry sauna increases mm. uh, brown fat and it, it increases mitochondria which is your energy organelle so anytime you're exercising or doing anything you got to call on your mitochondria and a lot of times the functionality of the mitochondria looks like someone's taking a hammer to them when you do a lot of over distance stuff to you know to harp on this uh area of, of going long all the time so your ice baths you combine sauna if you can do that um on a regular basis, and quite often you need 15 to 20 minutes in a hot sauna, and you you get a double-double benefit of, of uh, even the contrast of going to ice bath to a, you know, where you're seated in a, in a dry sauna. There's there's great data on yeah. that. Too. You're on a good you're on a good thing, uh, Greg. And yeah, you know, anybody that's listened to Rhonda Patrick, some of her um, podcasts, she's definitely one worth listening to. Um, for health and longevity, I've, I found her very good. But yes, we've been doing the you know the the dry sauna. We kind of do 20, 25 minutes of that. Then we usually wait about an hour, and then I do sort of fifteen minutes in a ice bath of fifteen uh, of fifty degrees Fahrenheit, and that just chills me down. And it's somebody once said to me, having you know bringing your body temperature down in an ice bath is like having you know four cups of coffee, and <laughs> and it is that kind of effect. Yeah. It really is like you just feel. And I, I like to warm up very slowly. I don't jump into a hot shower. I kind of try and embrace the coolness. But it's a fine line between getting too cold and and that kind of that right amount of going down just a couple of degrees body temperature. But highly, yeah. like you just said, I highly encourage all listeners to to come up with a protocol there's many different protocols out there but finishing with the ice bath after if you've done the sauna earlier i I like to do you know finish with an ice bath maybe an hour later or so but do you do it like that how do you how do you break the two up when you do it well i i prefer the sauna so i'm not as bold as you at the ice bath (laughs) data behind it so i'm trying to calm myself down and take more time to do that but again it's it's really the, you know, if you can get in four or five times uh, a week with mm. either ice bath or the sauna is, 
is a, a great um, delivery system for your your physiology. It's a real plus. The mm. other one that's fairly easy to do and, and amazing data on this, and it's just all it's a lot of science around the world on this is to increase the amount of uh, uh, duration between your last meal, which would be say dinner and when you're going to have breakfast. So you, you prolong the period where you're going to get up in the morning and, you know, breakfast is really kind of, you know, the term is to break the fast and the tendency is to always get up and, and to eat something. But if you can extend this, even for athletes that are going full bore and are beginning to shift, and, and this is a whole different topic. If you're going to go to low carb, high fat, there's a few things that you need to pay attention to. But this intermittent fasting, let's say that you overindulged on the night before and it's fairly late. Uh, and then you're getting up in the morning and think, gee, I'm going to have my standard breakfast. Uh, the, the good science and my suggestion to parallel this is that you allow at least 12 to 15 hours before you eat. Mm -hmm. This intermittent fasting really recharges your physiology and there's great adaptation to doing this. So, you know, let, let's, let's use a, a more realistic let, uh, example. Let's say that you finish dinner at, uh, at uh, 8, 8 p.m. at night and and now you're going through the the next morning it's eight o'clock and you're looking at tea should i eat that's 12 hours well maybe you can go till 12 that day and that would be 16 and then have your first meal mm. so uh again without going all the details uh this is a great way to kind of uh, recharge your system without overloading and thinking gee i i need food right now no you don't so you're starting to burn fat free fatty acids which is a great thing you're oxidizing fats which are not inflammatory mm -hmm. not over fueling yourself by eating yeah it's one of the things I, I i've done a lot of that myself and uh i'm an early bird special so i tend to be done eating by six and and then really the next day i'm kind of i start eating at 10 and and one of the things I was just, I was chatting to one of the guys that just looks after the tennis courts in the community that we're here now. And he's a bit of an overweight guy. And he's like, Greg, you know, can you give me some tips, you know, for, for diet or nutrition? I'd like to lose a few pounds. I said, look, because it's so confusing to a lot of people. There's so much information coming out. I said, look, one of the things you can do is just increase that fasting time. And I said, and then you're not thinking about what to eat. You're just thinking about don't eat. So it's one thing you have to focus on and he mm. loved that. And here he is, he's got it. He's, and I said, just start at 12 hours and then just try and increase it gradually. And I said, when you get to 16 hours, you know, and then the, you have your little eating window of eight hours and you have your couple of meals and, and that's the way it goes. And he's been doing it now for six months and it's been great to just watch him. And he's so excited about it because he's like, yeah, I don't even feel it. I mean, we, we were all told by the doctors in the 80s, look, you got to have high carbohydrate and breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And so we- sure. We got hammered those two things, and now we're all coming around to going. Hang on, intermittent fasting, and let's reduce those carbs. <laughs> you know, and so we're kind of we're, we're doing a complete one eighty from where we were, sort of in the eighties. But the other thing I've noticed with that intermittent fasting is how it affects my brain. Mm -hmm. I feel so switched on, and as soon as I eat, boom, I start to feel sluggish, and I'm working at about eighty percent of my brain capacity. It's amazing how. When you, you give yourself a chance to fast, and even on these interviews when I when I chat to the guests, I'm like, no, I, I I want to stay a little bit hungry. I actually don't want to be fully satisfied because it doesn't make me aware as much. And I've been really experimenting with how my brain feels, whether it be ice bathing or intermittent fasting, and, and I'm fascinated with how that all works. And and I almost like you, I wish we knew a little bit more about it when we were in our twenties and thirties when sure. we were competing, for sure. Yeah. Um, 
I just well, want to switch yeah. switch a little bit. We've we've kind of talked a fair bit about the nutrition side of thing. When when you were going through, you know, in the eighties, um, what was it like with your team that you built? I, I've found with most athletes, and I know with Laura and I, we always our family was important to us, but we also had a team of experts around us that all truly wanted the best for us. Were you able to build a team for yourself during that time? Uh, zero. Yeah, no team, Greg. Really? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I didn't have a team at all. I mean, I, of course I had my family and that's what, you know, I relied on them mm. as I do today. So they, they were my pillar of support. Uh, but I didn't have a, you know, there wasn't, a, there wasn't a coach, there wasn't a mentor, uh, you know, the whole diet thing that was scrambled. So, you know, I thought I was wise in that area. And I, I, it was the strangest thing. I remember when my contemporaries were out here in Boulder and, and I heard Mark Allen is getting a massage, uh, once or twice a week. And I thought, gosh, I, I always <laughs> felt like I never deserved it. And, you know, I get one, one a quarter, you know, every, every three or four months I, I would get a single massage. And, and I just didn't in those areas that were available to me. I maybe didn't take advantage of them. Uh, you know, I didn't have a someone to help stretch me out or a, a, a mentor in, in all the categories that we've kind of touched on. So it was. Um, was it you know, a little I, bit? You you were somewhat of a loner. You were you your nickname was even the man. Was that there? Was it kind of like I don't want to call it ego, but it was a little bit. No, I've got this. I don't need the help. And you kind of feel feel yourself. I mean, I, you know, that whole loner part and and being a hermit, I think there's been enough false media, you know, I'm I'm actually a, a, you know, fairly engaging guy. (laughs) I'd agree. I'd agree. Just get a glass of wine into you. (laughs) So I, you know, I always felt as though I, I, you know, had an open door and open mind to, uh, to other people, but I, I wasn't surrounded by that. And maybe I didn't seek it out. Uh, at, the, at the time when I was, was doing my bulk of my train, I lived in a town called Davis and there, there wasn't a, another triathlete there. You know, people started following my career and people started dabbling in it. So I, I didn't really have a team. I didn't have a team of, you know, a physician or a naturopath or chiropractor or whatever. I just didn't really seek that out. And it wasn't arrogance. Um, it was just maybe what I felt the opportunity wasn't there, you know, in hindsight, when I was getting closer to the end of my career and even the late eighties and certainly the nineties, I kind of relished the opportunity to to work out with people. And, Mm. you know, I realized I I didn't like a group of 10 on a bike, but if I had two or three mates to go out on the bike, I said, wow, this is, this is great. You know, they're Mm. pushing me and. And there's conversation, and you know, I I I felt as though that was uh, a void in in, in my career because I had moments where, uh, and you kind of alluded to it, I had moments where I had huge depression, mm. and the depression was uh, the standard was so high, and I didn't really have someone to you know help me get out of that, and it, I, I was all or nothing. If I couldn't do an hour and a half run, and I only had forty five minutes. Well, I'd say no, don't do it. And sort of like an alcoholic, it was. Mm. You know, the best thing for me was exercise. As I recognize, you know, once I was, you know, 40 plus plus, I said, I have to do a little bit, of, not necessarily every day, but on a regular basis just to keep my emotional stability. But when I was racing, I had periods where I didn't do anything and I would eat and I'd gain weight. And it was just kind of a vicious cycle. So, uh, you know, I wish I had a team. I, 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 and I've told athletes that I work with today and coach 
you know, I say, hey, do you have a group of triathletes? Is there a master swim team? Mm. Uh, and, you know, I can design the greatest program. And I say, you know what? You got that master's group. <clears throat> Why don't you go with them on, on Wednesdays? That You know, the benefit supersedes whatever great workout session I, I could, you know, put on their calendar. And, and I've encouraged that for years uh, just because I, I think the solidarity of the sport and the, and the, the solitude that you have while you're training can be consuming. It's nice to have a break and have people to support you. Yeah. I mean, you're very, I think there wouldn't be an athlete that hasn't reached the top of the world like you did that doesn't have that kind of a mentality, which was, you know, all or nothing. Let's be all in. And, and not to say that's healthy or right, but it, it, it just comes with the, the territory that, you know, and every athlete I've spoken to on this show have a similar mindset, you know, and it's, we're all trying to manage that the best we can, but at the same time, it's, it can be, especially under fatigue and duress, which, you know, when you're training 20, 30, 40 hours a week, it, it ha takes its toll and it's, and it is hard to manage. But the one thing about you now is, is you're a part of so many other athletes teams. Like, you know, I spoke to Craig Alexander and we, we chatted about you in the show and just said how, how you're not just an expert in the field of Hawaii Ironman. You're also somebody that truly wants the best for people that you work with. And that's a very different type of thing. I, I talk about a little bit on this show that you can have an expert bike mechanic or an expert massage therapist. The difference maker is, do they truly want the best for you? You mm -hmm. know, and that's when, and so as much as you never had a team, you know, I know Craig Alexander, Chrissy Wellington, none of them could have had their careers at you know, the Ironman World Championships without you. So, you know, it's, you might not have had it yourself, but I know you're contributing back to everybody else's right now. Well, you know, it's a good feel thing. I mean, it obviously makes me feel good. I'm not patting myself on the back, but, you know, when you're uh, the, the last two that you mentioned, Craig and Chrissy, you know, I started working with them, uh, you know, really kind of full time with Chrissy and just as an advisor with Craig. And then they were already brilliant. <laughs> You know, they, they were all already well accomplished. And, I, you know, my first thought was, boy, I don't want to muck up their. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'd rather work with someone who needs a lot of work yeah. than, than start at the top. I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I think part of it is, you know, you kind of look at the, the maybe the little small inadequacies that they have or the weaknesses that they have. And you try to tweak them a little bit and, and also make sure that they believe in what you're doing, because. Uh, and I've used this example with, with Craig and Chrissy. I remember kind of looking at their muscle imbalances and their mobility. And, and I, ironically, both their left glutes, I remember just kind of look at their gluteal strength. And uh, they were just dreadful on the left side. And Chrissy always had a kind of a funny hand position on her bars. She said, I got to do this. And her back was out of alignment. And, mm -hmm. and um, I remember, you know, kind of showing her a couple of exercises. Well, you, if the telltale sign is just do this. Fire that glute muscle, <laughs> you know, it was like a bowl of butter. I said, well, that's dreadful. <laughs> and they could see it right away. And right. that just drove them crazy because they're, you know, they weren't world champions because they didn't work at it. So they became pretty manic about, you know, rectifying that, that issue. And that's just one example. But, um, you know, I mean, being in the sport as long as I have, I mean, my, my motivation is, you know, I don't care if two people are competing against each other. You kind of want to bring out the best in both of, of them. Yeah. And that's always a motivation. And so if you're working, I mean, I know you coach 
I don't know how many athletes now, but I, I feel like you've been involved in the sport and you, you've coached thousands of athletes by this point. And, you know, do you, is there kind of a standardized approach that you would take? Like say somebody said, Hey Dave, I want to do fly Florida Ironman at the end of the year. Um, you know, can you give me a training program? Do you look at, I mean, the, we are all very similar, but it's also you want to pick out the little differences in people. But how would you look at a weekly program for somebody these days? Or, or you wouldn't do that. I don't know. Well, I just have a small number that I coach, Greg, um, I, and they're amateurs. I'm not really coaching any pros. I, I have a membership platform, Dave Scott Tri Club. You can go to my web website and just mm. uh, click on that, and we can follow up with a 30 day free membership. I, it, it's a I have four programs in there, 12 week programs, but I think the benefit of it to answer your question is that um, I have a forum. I do two webinars a month and it's really, it's really input from the athletes that provide me the momentum and the interest in, in coaching because they're all different. Mm. So, you know, to kind of answer your question, the four that I work with, you know, I, we kind of, you know, dissect what their uh, major events are, what they want to, uh, focus on. And I, I set mm. up what I call micro cycles. It's periodization. So mm. we kind of build towards those, those events. And, and I, I found that a lot of athletes that are kind of fit year round, they need to be kind of careful. Um, and I'm sure you've seen this in your, uh, amazing mm. career. It's hard to hold peak form any longer than about eight to 11 weeks. You know, you're kind of in that window. So it's, it, it's, it's easy if you have a couple of those. So if you have a, an early season where you've got a targeted race and that might be in the Northern hemisphere, it might be a May, June race. And then you have one in September, October, you can kind of have a split season. So you can have these two periods where you really, uh, you know, have, can have potentially some amazing races. So I, I set up their programs that way. And I try to keep that in mind because I get people that, you know, uh, again, February, they're already really fit and I want them to, to have their best race, uh, in October. What's well, it comes a long season. Mm, <laughs> so mm. I, I set up these typically four to seven week microcycles, And, and, um, you know, one of the things that I have done and kind of <laughs> haven't changed a lot is, uh, we do this higher intensity stuff. I did it with Craig and Chrissy. I always have a, a VO2 set and, and maximal oxygen uptake. So five times four minutes, blast them. Give yourself a lot of rest on it. That's a that's a simple example. But is I that always, on the run or bike? You do that or it doesn't yeah, matter. Both, both of them, and, and oh, also yeah. you know even on the swim. But you can break up the swim into smaller pieces with a short rest. You can do this on the run as well. Uh, does you know you might be running. Uh, uh, 800 meters and then you're, you're, you're gliding for 15 seconds and then you're running 600 meters. And so the, the sum is, you know, in this four to five minute window. Mm. Uh, so I, I always did this with Craig and Chrissy, particularly as they were building up towards Ironman, which was the, obviously a key race for them. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I just found that I didn't, I didn't care about their long ride or their long run. I mean, I, I did to a certain point. I, and Craig did some crazy things in Hawaii. Like he, he told me one time, I ran that 20 miler. And I said, gee, bloody hell, why'd you do that? That was idiotic. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, I didn't say that to him, but you know, he, he did some crazy stuff. And so did Chrissy. But one thing that was uh, sort of continuity and getting back to your question is I did these VO2 sets as they're coming into the last of last big race. And I found that their power output was high 
it wasn't whether or not their endurance was going to prevail. They had, they had great endurance. So mm. uh, I do these micro cycles. That's one key element that I was, would always implement. And I do that with athletes that I coach. I do this on the Dave Scott Tri Club program in these 12-week programs. We do a VO2 set, and it's, I think it's been pretty key. Mm. And do you work with athletes? I mean, how was it actually? Let's just take one step back. When you were going through your own career racing, and did you work a lot on your your mental side? Oh, this is a topic that I love: is the the mental approach and visualizing and affirmations. Or were you just do the work, turn up, and see how it goes? No, I I think that uh, you know I think a lot of athletes kind of bury that, and um, uh, you know I think this this whole thing that. Uh, you can't focus on the, you know, people call it pain. I said, it's pain when, when you're out of control. It's, it's a barometer of discomfort when you're in control. And oh, all, I love that. Barometer of discomfort. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Fine line. You just go above it and you say, okay, mm. I'm a little bit above it. Don't panic. Just lower it down a little bit and I get back into your rhythm. So you're, you're kind of giving these affirmations all the time, which mm. you lose and the easiness of the discomfort level when you're right at that kind of red line whatever it is and what distance you're running or you know the uh, all three disciplines have it you're, you're singularly focusing on those small little nuggets and i i always use just focus on you know physically how i felt i start with my forehead how's my face doing am, am i relaxing my uh, my mouth am i taking slow inhales through, through my nose and my mouth for a, a few times to, to calm down my sympathetic nervous system so i didn't have this you know fight or flight system where all of a sudden i was panicky and that would calm me down and all good athletes are able to do that but you have to kind of work at it to be able to turn that switch on when the heat is on and when you do feel like tear over the top so you know i did this with myself like okay just get to that next tree up there it's 100 meters think about your shoulders back stomach hips legs feet <laughs> and mm -hmm. kind of move up and down this chain from the top of your head all the way down to your core to your toes and back up and all of a sudden you get to that tree and say okay i feel good now you know move to that next one it might be a you know a thousand meters down the road and all of a sudden you get into that flow again so mm -hmm. you know i i use phrases all the time um I remember seeing a, uh, a friend of mine, we went to undergraduate school together and he was a, he was working here at CU Boulder, uh, the university. And he was, he's a sports psychologist. His name's Jeff. And I kind of went into him in 94. My, I, uh, my two boys were young. I had had this five-year hiatus from 89. I was going to race Ironman again. And, and I just said, God, my days just seems really cloudy. And, and I, you know, I've got too many things going on. And he told me something. He said, Dave, you do this really well, but you've forgotten this phrase. And, and I said, well, tell, share it with me. And he, he said, just do what you can do at the moment. And the simplicity of that is that you're, you're not thinking about the next kilometer down the road when you're racing. You're not thinking about, you know, at that time, my kids. Uh, I'm just thinking about right now and right at that moment and how I can heighten that uh, you know, the expectation and how I feel right then. And, I, and I've told athletes this. I, I, I said, you know, in the six wins that I had in Hawaii, there were moments in there I just felt hellish. You know, I wanted to quit. Mm. <laughs> but you kind of glide through those with that particular phrase. And, and I would use, you know, affirmative words like, you know, just be smooth, be rhythmic. And, and people would say, people would say, and they're 100% they're correct, 
it looks like someone shot you when you were running. And I said, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I know. I I look pretty wounded when I'm running. And, you know, I would visualize myself as, you know, the greatest African runner that ever shoes on. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I feel like I'm floating. I'm like a gazelle. And then I'd see video clips and I said, my gosh, that's just horrific. But, you know, if you have this visual uh, affirmative statements that might be phrases, then all of a sudden you you do get in that groove, which you're very familiar, where you just have the easiness at this high level of discomfort. And like you said, you got to you got to practice that. You got to practice that in your training, and um, you know, so those affirmations become second nature. I remember for me. When I was doing the short course racing, and often it was starting on a pontoon, whether it be ITU Olympics or whatever it is, and my first affirmation word, well, after you know they've sort of said you're in the hands of the starter, my first when I'd hear the gun go, it'd be just I'd yell, explode, you know, yes. and that was like a really aggressive, powerful tool to get off the start blocks. But then straight into words like rhythm, smooth, and everything else you mentioned, where all the words, and I'd plan them out. I'd actually know what words I'd be using. Throughout sure. the race, and what I'm fascinated about, fascinated about the future, and and I, you know, we've talked about that. We think, you know, a lot of these guys can run probably ten to fifteen minutes quicker than they are in an Ironman um, due to nutrition. But I'm also fascinated by the brain chemistry and how we can affect ourselves hormonally with word affirmations or visualizing that we can create adrenaline. Right. At you know five miles to go in an Ironman when we're completely exhausted, how can we? use a word or a trigger to try and get more out of ourselves than physically we thought possible. And I, I think the brain is still very much the future of where we're going to go with a lot of these athletes. So we, we kind of feel like we're massaging the point of are we the very best we can get in human performance. But I think the brain, like you mentioned, bits on nutrition, bits on in inflammation, there's still a lot of areas we can have inroads on. And the brain is fascinating to me. And I know for my own career, like in that sort of I, I'd won a number of races before, before sort of 05, 06, but it was only about 8 or 10%. It really wasn't a lot. Um, mm. But then sort of from 06, 07, I changed it to I was winning probably one in every two for about four or five years there. And, and a lot of that was really working hard on my visualizing. And and I talk about having sort of a, a static visualizing where I'd be on a massage table and I'd go through the whole race and, and visualize every moment. And that could be a, a year out from a race, you know, and, and just figuring out who the players were, what it was going to be like and everything else. And then I had the, the physical moving visualizing where I'd go do the 10 by 1K repeats or whatever it was. And, you know, I'd have all the players, we'd be getting off the bike, there'd be a commentator in my head and, you know, and away we'd go. And, and that for me in my own career, yes, I was getting fitter and stronger and doing some great work, but it was I took ownership of the winning and it, it didn't become foreign to me. It was something that it was almost like, yeah, this is right. I'm meant to be leading the race. Yeah, I'm meant to be this is meant to be happening. And and I have some great stories where what I visualized to the actual players, you know, Peter Robinson, Simon Whitfield, these guys are it actually happened exactly how I visualized. It. And that was just and did, I, I, it was just so fun to to do, and and I don't think there's many of the guests I have on this show that haven't been creative in the way that they've tried to visualize these outcomes, and um, it's extraordinary. You were doing it so far in front of everybody else, you know, and, well, and studying. When you really apply it well, is when you, you you do feel kind of consumed with the the moment of negativity, mm. whatever it's put you in that little basket you know, how can you pull yourself out of it? And I think that that's the, 
you know, the nature of this particular sport, you, you do have a lot of time. It doesn't matter if you're ra- racing Olympic distance or 70.3 or Ironman, it, it's not 100 meters. So you have lots of uh, moments of clarity where you have an, an opportunity to heighten your performance and not bury it. Mm. No, for sure. So just just to sort of we, we've got a couple more minutes here. I just are there any sort of gear tips you want to give people that um, might be able to help them if they're an aspiring triathlete? They might be already doing triathlon, one do Ironman, or they're just a fitness fanatic, or they're just a a forty something plus guy that's just trying to stay healthy. <laughs> are there any? I mean, that's a vast. I've given you a lot of people there, but is there any kind of things that you're like, okay, you need this in your life? Oh, wow. We had to, I mean, it's a huge question. We've hit, hit on a lot of the topics. <laughs> we did already. I know. I know what you yeah, mean. But. I mean, I think it's easy it's, it's easy to void your weaknesses. And I think everyone has, uh, certainly when they're starting, they kind of recognize that, you know, their their skill set may be lacking in some area. And, uh, and I, I had a, a podcast recently and they were talking just about run biomechanics, which we were just talking about. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, the comment was, well, you basically gravitate into your own running form and that's, you're sort of locked into it. What do you think about that, Dave? And I said, I totally disagree. Mm-hmm. And, and even using someone that, uh, you know, has a irregular gait or funny arm action, or, you know, they have a weak core. I, I think there are little nuances that you always can change with every athlete to make them more biomechanically efficient. So I think to your question, you know, it's, it's helpful to have a trained eye that can really look at technique in all three sports. I mean, obviously positioning on the bike is paramount, but you, and, and also pedaling action and, you know, what your hips are doing, what your core is doing, which, how's your low back compensating on the bike. And, you know, obviously the nuances of running the swimming are, are immense, but if you have two or three things with a, a good coach can work on that and give you the, the skills and the drills to apply them, that can make a, a world of difference. One of the things that, um, I, I think, and, you know, Greg, you kind of touched on it is all these different areas and elements that are really still an open window for science and, and athletes of the future. I, I found that I had these camps at, at four seasons in, in Hawaii and mm. w- w- the sessions that we do every single day. And I think people uh, initially cower at it. I, I call them mobility, stretching and strength. And, and we work 30 minutes to an hour and we hit the big three areas. So for triathletes, the whole shoulder complex, the rotator cuff and all the muscles involved with it, but also your serratus and lats that affect your, your movement in just reaching overhead. Um, your thoracic spine, the middle part of your back getting length and rotation, and then your hips. So we got shoulders, thoracic spine, and hips. If you can increase the mobility, a little bit of the flexibility, the connective tissue and the muscles and tendons, and then increase your strength. And it doesn't take much, you know, people even twice a week, and you've got 15 minutes, you can make a dent in those three areas. A little bit every day, particularly in the mobility part, it will make a huge difference. And people say, well, how do I fit this in? And I say, well, I say, get on the floor at night. Don't sit in a chair. If you're sitting in a chair, you could be doing your exercises. So don't sit in a chair and don't give me that excuse. So I, you know, I'm kind of harsh on people, but I think those are 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 huge and and um, obviously we touched on diet and it's a big topic i think people can really take a look at the good science and diet so i didn't 
really have an order on that, but maybe that's my rambling. So when are you when are your camps on? Because I, I've been wanting to join you on one of those. <laughs> and I know uh, <laughs> the, the, it, it sounds pretty fabulous. They're they're in kind of a couple of times a year. You're doing camps out there. Uh, I, I've had them four times a year for the last four years. We're doing three this year. I, I have one coming up uh, third week in January, so real soon. And then uh, we have one right before the Honu race. Some people are, are coming out. They're real small in number five to eight people. So that's May and uh, uh, coming up to the end of May. And then the last one is in July. And we, we have had a number of people that have come back, which is kind of, a, I guess, a, a good plus. So yeah, uh, three this year. And and, um, and then, you know, if people are, are looking, I would just tell them to look at my Dave Scott Tri Club thing. And, uh, you know, if they your listeners wanted to send me an email. I, I respond to almost every question that I get and I spend a lot of time on the, uh, Mm. sending emails, but you know, I like the personal connection and and, and I, and I use a lot of the the people that write in like, Hey Dave, I got this uh, low back problem. I got such and such. such." I I love, still love and always passionate about trying to figure out the triathletes puzzle. That's fantastic. And so they find out about your camp. What's your, what's the website again? Uh, they can they can just come to my website. I always tell people just to, to Google me, Greg. There's a, yeah, Dave Scott. Okay, <laughs> they'll find sorry. you all, all <laughs> over the web. <laughs> it's pretentious. There's a there's a black entertainer. He's amazing. There's a felon. Uh, there's a, there's an astronaut, and I've actually it, I, I've received two pictures of this astronaut in an astronaut suit from young kids. They <laughs> <laughs> said, "Hey, Dave, can you sign this?" And I thought, "Oh my gosh." You know, I thought about, I, I said, well, my little sport, people kind of know me. I'm a triathlete. And I thought, I, the last thing I'm going to send this young kid is a picture of me in, a, no. in my swim togs. In a Speedo. <laughs> yeah, probably get arrested, but her mother would send a henchman after me. But uh, yeah, those are very funny. I, I've, got, I've gotten two, um, but there's a little more clarity on the internet. So they can find me pretty easy. Yeah, I have a guy, uh, there's a Gregory Bennett guitarist. And uh, yeah. he, uh, I think he makes guitars. And What's crazy is his signature is almost exactly the same as mine as well. The way he signs his guitars, I'm like, oh crap! <laughs> well, I, would, I would claim that area too, Greg. Yeah, yeah. So, who who are the brands that you're working with um, that you know supporting you at the moment? You got a few? Uh, I got a few. Uh, Hoob, I have a Dave Scott line, and uh, finally moving a little bit more worldwide. They're based in the UK. Hoop started with their wet wetsuits, H-U-U-B. Yep. And I work with a nutrition company, which is based on this low-carb, high-fat uh, mm. uh, nutritional ketosis called S-Fuels. And they're a pretty innovative company. They've got product out on the market. Um, Finis, a swim, swim-related company. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're part of my marquee, Four Seasons, which I – mentioned and then a, 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 I'll say a few smaller ones. So working with Norma Tech and mm. uh, so we're trying to put these together and, and uh, also provide some perks for the people that are in the club. And um, yeah, we're finally coming out with a Dave Scott line. People always, uh, I have the Dave Scott line with who we're trying to get a branded line with my logo for the club members and people joke. And I said, yeah, it's been an, R&D for about 15 years. So we're going <laughs> to, we're going to roll that out slowly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then, so people following you on social media, is it just Dave Scott or anything else they need to yeah, know about? Pretty easy. It'll pop up. All right. Perfect, mate. Well, 
This has been absolutely wonderful and a real pleasure for me, mate, because uh, you're a wealth of knowledge. I think we could do another one of these every couple of months. You've just got, you know, you're a knowledgeable guy and knowing that your dad was a professor, now it makes more sense to me that, you know, <laughs> the way your brain works now makes a lot more sense. You know, you you love the science, you love the details and, uh, you know, it's been a real pleasure and, you know, thanks for coming on and thanks well, for everybody listening. And uh, again, if you want to, you know, enjoy some great camps and listen to someone who knows probably more, especially about Kona Ironman, but also about the world of triathlon and endurance sports, you know, head on over to Dave Scott. So thanks for joining me, mate. Yes. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for your time. And you're, uh, you're always a pleasure to chat with. All right, mate. Just stay online for a sec. Thanks everybody. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.